walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 47. I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my this is the last episode of this most recent batch of five, and it came about as a pleasant surprise. In nearly every case, episodes come together gradually, usually as a result of me reading something and thinking about it for a while. I don't make episodes just to make them. Rather, they tend to come about when I have something kicking around in my head for a while and I need to get it out. But then, as I was clearing out the schedule to work on these new episodes, I got an email from Alexander John Shia extolling the virtues of an upcoming pilgrimage memoir, and that got my attention. While I've occasionally spoken with authors briefly about upcoming books, Rebecca Scott's Furnace Full of God is the most recent example, this is the first time I've actually been able to read through the full work and chat about it with the author before publication, before it's released into the world. So it was a cool opportunity. The book in question is Into the Thin, A Pilgrimage Walk Across Northern Spain, by Stephen Drew. And once I read it, I was all the more pleased to get to speak with Stephen about it. In the extended discussion that follows, we talk about companionship on the Camino, his processing of guilt, shame, and more personal tragedies than anyone should have to endure, and the insights he ultimately arrived at in Finisterre. It's a walk towards love and away from guilt and shame, and we talk about it next. Stephen Drew of Morris, Connecticut, is the author of Into the Thin, A Pilgrimage Walk Across Northern Spain, which will be released this September 2020, brand new. Thanks for talking with me, Stephen, and congratulations on your new book. Thank you, and it is it is beyond an honor to talk to you, Dave. I really appreciate it. Well, I was getting emails from Alexander who said, I've read this book and you should talk to this guy. So when I get that kind of email, I know I got to jump into action. Well, God bless Alexander then. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) He's a real advocate for it. And I see why having read it now. So let's start with this. From your perspective, why did this book need to be written? That's a great question. And let me tell you, especially at the outset of this, I asked myself that daily. And I'm not really sure if there's an absolute answer to that. It may be beyond my pay grade, but I shall attempt something here where in the universal sense, there may be precisely as many reasons that the book needed to be written as there will be people who read it. Memoir is a tricky animal. If I do my job well, telling you my story will likely lead to a better understanding of yours. So there's that for sure. You know, there's as many different experiences of any form of art, be it a book or a painting or a sculpture, that it's an entirely personal, subjective experience, much like the Camino itself. Uh, No two are the same, and I don't think any two reactions to this book or any book would be the same. So primarily, it's for those reading. Other than that, on a more personal level, I think, and I actually posit this at the very, very end of the afterword, that it was actually, in a very real sense, a continuation of the 
Camino experience itself. You mentioned Alexander John Shia, and he wrote a book called Returning from Camino that I wholeheartedly endorse, and especially the central idea behind it, that the Camino does not end in Santiago or Finisterre or Muchia. Mm -hmm. The Camino definitely continues on. And it does not end abruptly. It does not, we don't suddenly have this light bulb moment where, aha, that's what the whole thing was about. Not at all. I walked the Camino in the spring of 2016, and its meaning has been evolving through the process of writing the book. I finished it early in 2018, Mm -hmm. as much as you can finish a book. And even since then, it's been evolving. So it was an experience in continuing along the way. Many people choose to walk the Camino, but as you describe in your book, you were called to it. What was that like, that moment of being called to pilgrimage, and what do you think was behind it? To answer that as thoroughly as I can, I would, I would have to tell you that I had come to some knowledge of it prior. I first came to know of the Camino back in the 1980s, and I read James Michener's book, Iberia. Mm-hmm. And the last chapter of that book is Santiago de Compostela. That's the name of the chapter. And so that's when I first became aware of it. And life went on, you know, life unfolded, things happened, and it sort of got filed back in memory. And then roughly in, in 2012, I was reminded of it by seeing the movie The Way. So many people are prompted to walk by that movie. <laughs> and so that, you know, when I went to see that movie, the opening scenes, and slowly it came back, and I thought to myself, I remember this. Yes, yes, yes. So that was 2011, I want to say, late in 2011. And this calling that you're asking me about occurred in August of 2012. And, you know, it's a funny thing. You know, when does something begin? It's actually a question (laughs) I posit in the first sentence of the introduction. And this is when things get a little bit mystical, if you will. But I'll tell you the story, and I'll I'll tell you what happened, and then maybe work back from there. I was walking, as I do virtually every day, along a roadside in Morris, Connecticut. And uh, it was an afternoon. It was an August afternoon, one of those really hot, hazy, humid (laughs) summer days. And I was already soaked. And I was just walking along. Nothing in particular on my mind. I was coming to an end of a brief sabbatical period with my work, looking at rejoining the working life in about a week or so. That was about it. And as I walked along one step after another, and this is where we have to kind of apply the freeze frame to the story, one foot lifts up, and before it finds its way to the ground again, the entirety of the experience of walking the Camino de Santiago enters my life as a complete reality. There is no decisional balancing. There is no, gee, how's this going to happen? None of that. It simply becomes a reality of my life Hmm. before my foot hits the ground. And I was walking along and this happens and I straightened up and I remember some kind of a noise came out of me. (laughs) And uh, immediately, you know, I had never had this kind of experience before. And the first thought was that, you know, my God, I've lost my mind. And so I, I responded fearfully. 
And I started asking those questions, you know, well, what about this? What about that? I've, I've just become involved in a partnership at, at work. And, and after things settled, a few more steps, things settled in a little bit. There was this very gentle reassurance. In the book I speak, if it had expressed as a voice, it would have been this really warm, chocolatey, smooth voice. <laughs> and it would have said, hey, relax, just live your life. You'll know when it's supposed to happen. It's not going to be next Tuesday. Just go on and live your life and you will know and you will go because there's something there for you. And that's what it was like. Now, what had put me in this position, if you will, you know, again, it comes back to when do things really begin, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I guess a convenient place would be, you know, the year 2010, where I was confronted with just a remarkable, seemingly relentless series of personal tragedies, literally within a space of 12 months. And this is a potential trigger for calling, I suppose. But again, you know, this is something I'm, I'm a little suspect of. I have a sense that it goes back a little more than that. But in that one year, I had the experience of a very, very close friend and uh, mentor having a relapse into a chronic disease. And he, later in the year, the, in December of that same year, he, he succumbed. Mm -hmm. My father-in-law, who was closer to me, frankly, than my own father at the time, developed some severe medical issues, end-of-life stuff, and passed away. One of my stepchildren had a medical crisis. And while she was hospitalized with that medical crisis, my 28-year-old son committed suicide. And at the end of all of this, my marriage of 14 years came to an end. And this in the space of literally of 12 months. So I think that may have kind of contributed to to all of that. But my sense was that from the very outset of this renewed Camino awareness, if you will, there was a sense of presence and intelligence operating in the interior life. It always knew. It always knew. Mm. And even if in human terms, I, I couldn't have possibly been aware of that. But that's, uh, in a nutshell, that's what the calling uh, to Camino was like. It was not discreet. And so in the immediate aftermath of this, I have a very close friend who's a, a Catholic priest. And I thought, well, here's a fellow who knows a thing or two about being called, I suppose. And so we ended up having a conversation, and, and he was just lovely about the whole thing. He had no judgment. He had no real comments about it other than to say, it sounds like something significant happened, and wouldn't it be lovely if you were able to complete this, this communion? So he put, it, he put it right back to that. So. And then you were in motion. Very much. My dear significant other, Diane, I, I would swear I could catch her rolling her eyes over the ensuing uh, three and a half year period between that time and the time I, I actually left. I don't know if you remember the movie Close Encounters <laughs> and the, the Richard Dreyfus character is consumed with the shape of Devil's Tower where he's going to go meet the aliens. And it was sort of like that. I could not get it out of my mind. I could put it on a back burner and it would come right back up front. I was just absolutely smitten with the whole idea, and that's putting it mildly. So <laughs> it never let me go once a call, that's for sure. 
there are a handful of different topics that I, I hope to talk with you about with regards to your experience on the Camino and your reflections on it. And the first is kind of the structure of your Camino, your your journey on the Camino mm-hmm. Frances. Because anyone who's read about the Frances, who has walked it, is familiar with this framework that a lot of people have for it, that there are these three distinct stages to the Camino Frances, and you might hear them framed in slightly different ways, but that tripartite nature is pretty consistent. And while a lot of books will use that as a loose organizational frame, in the case Mm -hmm. of your journey, I've never seen it play out quite as precisely as it did in in, in that. It felt like it was by design that you intended it and you made it so. I want to talk about that kind of stage by stage as it played out. What was your thinking going into the first third of your walk between Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port and Burgos? What were you intending? What were you hoping for? Right. Well, I love to think that it was as by design, as you, you've alluded to, I, I don't think I'm that powerful or that intelligent, <laughs> but I know what you mean. And that first stage, to me, I looked at it in terms of what is the centering experience? What is the thing here that operates at the center of it? And in the first stage, for me, I really felt it was very much a, a carnal, body-oriented surrounding-oriented experience. I'm in France. I'm in Spain. I've never been here before. My body is being asked to walk, although I am a fairly prodigious hiker, the idea of 15 to 20-mile treks every day, one after the other, is, is, is a bit daunting. So any kind of hope that I had, I'm not sure. I guess maybe I was even purged of hope. It was just a matter of putting one foot in front of the other, walking no matter what, and seeing if I could handle the daily walk. And almost as if on cue the first day, most people who who listen to this podcast, I'm sure, are aware of the Napoleon route out Mm -hmm. of uh, Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port to Roncevallis. And I did this almost entirely in driving rain. And I can remember I hadn't even gotten as far as Junto And I can remember thinking, my God, what have I done? (laughs) There's nothing like that opening stretch. It's so steep. And you're just imagining the whole day is going to be like this. How will I survive? Exactly. I was thinking I've I've been a fool. My God, (laughs) was this whole thing some kind of twisted delusion or what? And I remember reaching on and there's that little cafe there. And there's about 20 of us crammed under the overhang trying to get out of the weather. And I said, this is ridiculous. There certainly is going to be no resting here. And I just got back to it. But it was like walking waist deep in a swimming pool. And then things, of course, improved after uh, Orison. But that first stage was very much centered on the carnality. However, there were times of mystical experience. There were times of an exploration of mind always the intelligence of the Camino uh, presenting itself, infusing itself into the daily march. You know how it is. Mm-hmm. You know, abandon all hope of calling this coincidence. It's uh, well beyond that. So the end of the first day was an interesting moment in that big Dutch albergue in, in <laughs> Roncevallis. 
And I'm wondering if I could read a passage from that. Yeah, please do. So this is actually the end of the first chapter, which is the end of the first day. Long before I came here, I'd heard of the mysterious energy of the Camino. And though it remains enigmatic, I believe it touched me today. It's like a wispy, ephemeral current, subtle and perfect. It flows towards Santiago de Compostela from everywhere, neither pushing nor pulling. The pilgrim rides along in this current and it infuses the body when the more carnal energy wanes. It infuses everything, really. It has intention and it has intelligence. It has a thing to tell me. It is expressed in the wind at my back and the wind in my face in the driving rain and the warmth of the refuge. It lives in the air, in others, and in the inspiring answers to fearful thoughts. It shows itself to me in the peaceful eyes of standing cows and indifferent sheep, in the reassuring songs of cuckoos, and in the holy act of ascension. I am relieved it has not forgotten me, since it called as I walked along the country road in Morris, Connecticut. So that was the idea, actually, you know, looking back over this, of what that whole first section, if you will, or phase of the Camino was. There was definitely the carnality, but to either side of that centering experience, there's the mystical, there's the mind, there's the emotions. All of it came into play. It was just primarily, for me, between Sanjan and Burgos, say, that's kind of where the centering was. It struck me when I was reading this part of your book, it's interesting that you talk about carnality because I can't recall many pilgrim journals on the Camino Frances that focus less on pain and discomfort. I so mm -hmm. expect the long discussions of intense physical ailments and blisters and you talk about that, of course, and especially in that crossing of the Pyrenees, but so mm -hmm. much more of it seems to me, as I read it, to be you going through the process of grounding yourself in Spain on the Camino, settling into the realities of pilgrim life, and then also the joys of companionship and the rapport mm -hmm. that you strike up with Heinrich. Could you talk mm -hmm. about that relationship? And I'd be interested in hearing both what that partnership with Heinrich meant to you over those days and why the two of you seem to be so clear on the fact that despite how much you enjoyed each other's company, you were going to part ways in Burgos. Wonderful question. So Heinrich and I first met at dinner on the first night. I was walking with a guy from Western Canada who I'd met about halfway through the first day's climb toward Roncevallas. So we, uh, we made plans to have dinner at La Posada, and Heinrich was at our table. That's when we all first met him. And just struck me as this really elegant dude. He was you know, German, very understandable English, great sense of humor, understated, you know, being German. <laughs> and uh, I just instantly took a liking to him. The following day, Greg and I, the, the Canadian fellow, walked to uh, Zubiri, and then it was walking, when he and I were walking from Zubiri to Pamplona, that we ran into Heinrich along the way, alongside the river there. And we ended up, from that point on, we were three. So Heinrich stayed with us through 
Pamplona through Punta Lorena. And then after that, on the way to Estella, Greg pulled ahead. So from that point on, it was Heinrich and I. We just found that you, know, you can run into people on the Camino who don't honor the silence. Mm. And we were definitely not of that variety. We could have a little conversation and we could have a lot of silence and both just be naturally comfortable with that. We had sort of similar situations in our, our family lives. We had some wonderful conversations about the play between ego and spirit, that tension that, that occurs in, in the human. These were the kinds of conversations that we had. And referring back again to no coincidences on the, on the Camino, we were having dinner and it was early on in our, our time together. It was our first night without Greg with us. And we were uh, having dinner in Estella. And I could tell something was, was on his mind. He just seemed to be a little bit distracted. And he was, he was sort of fidgety at the table. And then he came out and said, I have a problem with my daughter. And he had a daughter very similar ages as to mine, my surviving child and how he was having a conflict with her, and the source of the conflict was his significant other, that his daughter didn't think this woman was right for him. And as he's telling me this, I had that sensation that you get, it's sort of like the ice ball in the stomach kind of mm -hmm. thing. I just couldn't believe it, because I was going through almost precisely the same experience with my own daughter, as he was going through with his, and I let him finish, and I said, Heinrich, I, I just, I don't know how to tell you this, but I think the Camino's done it again, and I, I told him my story, and that's when I told him all of it about what had transpired with my son and, and so forth, and I think that's when we really kind of clicked in and, and synced with each other, but very similar senses of humor and, and just a great companion when you're, when you're on a long walk. He was just wonderful. I had a lot of questions from friends about Heinrich after they read the book. They said, geez, you guys never stayed in touch, you know, and, <laughs> and as close as it ever got, you know, it's funny, those Camino relationships, and I didn't want the disappointment of making this connection, attempting to stay in touch, and then ultimately failing at that, which most do. That, to me, would have been heartbreaking. Our relationship was all about the Camino. It was all about holding space with each other, sharing the walk with each other. And when it was time to move on, in our case, the Maseta, which you've already referred to, then it was time to put that down in the best possible way and move forward, just like the Camino, move forward and move westward. The closest we ever got to making any kind of plans, his, his birthday was coming up at the end of the month, right around the time we were due into Santiago. And I told him, I said, if I should run into you, I will buy you a birthday dinner. That was where we left it. And I did not see him other than one other time in the first couple of days on the Maseta. It simply wasn't meant to be, but we both left it up to the universe to decide. I was waiting the whole book for you to run into him in Santiago. <laughs> well, that's what a lot of people were telling me. And so I'm like, geez, I wonder if I should have put some kind of a thing in there. But no, if I kept you turning pages, Dave, then, yep. then that's good, you know. So you and Heinrich part ways in Burgos, and then you're off to the Meseta. Mm. And in the pages mm. leading to that moment, it's already clear that 
your thinking about the Maseta is laden with expectation. That is where you anticipate coming face to face with mm-hmm. all of these personal tragedies that you had endured over the preceding years. Why did you approach it that way? Like, why were you anticipating that to occur in the Maseta? And how did it play out? If I had an expectation for any part of the walk, I would agree with you that that was it. And Heinrich and I had many discussions about this. Having been there yourself, you know that the Maseta is either dreaded or embraced. You can't really be half pregnant about the (laughs) Maseta. So it's kind of a love or hate sort of thing, I think, in most cases. And what I noticed was that most of the people that just wanted to get through it were the younger folks. There simply wasn't that much to reflect on. Mm. But I found that people in middle age and upper middle age, and when I walked the Camino, I had just turned 60. It's a target-rich environment, if you will. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of stuff that can come up. And I didn't really have an expectation so much as to what would come up, but certainly that something would. And so it's a matter of going in with that and as little else as possible to just walk and pay attention and watch what comes up and keep on walking. And so I would say without reservation that the experience of walking that 240 or so kilometers across essential nothingness definitely did pay off. And I I had this odd experience and I thought it was, of course, I thought it was unique to me until I talked to a few other folks where I would be walking along just observing the beauty and the space and the bigness of it all. And all of a sudden, I would just burst into these chest-heaving sobs. And not even being able to connect this with any particular string of thought that may have preceded that. Even when I would be thinking about what transpired with my son, it's as if whatever was going on here was not necessarily connected that. And I've had a pet theory and I, I still sort of maintain, and I've discussed this with others without a whole lot of disagreement, that I had a sense that I was being purged of something and that it wasn't necessarily important for me to know what, but that something was working its way out. It's sort of like an eruption, if you will, you know, an energy that's just got to come out. And I am talking this not subtle. Not tears gently falling. I mean, just sobbing in the middle of virtually nowhere. Mm. So it had its moments, uh, certainly. Well, the Meseda ends, depending on how you want to measure it, in Leon or in Astorga or or wherever you know one might think of it, and you, you'll see different people frame it in different ways. Certainly, the Burgos to Leon framework is very convenient. Right. In my reading of your story. It seems like this arc, you transition in from the second to the third stage at the Cruz de Ferro, where it seems like there is this releasing of what you have been working through over the course of the Meseta. Is that fair? And, and could you talk about what your experience was like at the Cruz? Geographically, I guess I had always perceived that the Meseta ends just prior to Astorga. Mm-hmm. And I would include this to sort of illustrate this, at least in my own recollection. There is a particularly, I found, challenging section of 
the Camino between Hospital de Orbigo and Astorga. Mm -hmm. It's a series of undulates, and this was a particularly difficult day. I was really struggling. I knew I needed help. I couldn't put my finger on it. I just felt as though I needed help. I wish I could be more specific, but that's that's about the best I can do. And I finally came across this was a long, flat section of the Camino, and I estimated I had probably eight or ten kilometers before I would get into Astorga. And I came upon this refuge along the side of the Camino. There was a lot of folks there who were taking a rest. And I, I found that this place was called Casa de los Dioses, House of the Gods. Mm -hmm. And there was a, uh, a gentleman who lived there, David, David, and he was very, very much a presence there. The whole thing was donativo. I had to look for the place to leave a donation. It was, you know, he almost hid the box. Uh, but he had fruit juices and fruits and things like that, all really, really good, healthy stuff. And I was just so grateful that he was there. And he came over to me and he gets around to everybody and he greets people in whatever language they speak. And he, he looked at me from such depth and he said he wanted to stress how important it was to the walk that we have rest and nourishment and that that's why this place is here and it's to be shared and I'm so glad you're here he said and I, I just I felt tears welling up so I went and I sat down and had my refreshments and I rested there for about an hour and I just watched this guy walking around and he was coming from someplace else hmm. and when I went to leave I, I wanted to touch base with him one more time to thank him again and uh, he pulled me close and he got him right next to my ear and he said, Buen Camino, I hope you have a beautiful life, my friend. And, you know, this is four years, Dave, and I still can't tell that story without being choked up. To me, he was a living saint. There was a presence about this guy that was just astounding. Literally, it's as if the air around him was charged. And as I walked on from there, it wasn't too much further till I got to the edge of that plateau. And I looked out and I could see San Justo and Astorga in the distance, and I knew I was getting close. And I had a sense that I was passing through a portal with him. And that, to me, is, is kind of where the experience of the Meseta transitioned into something else. Mm. I would just offer that on mm -hmm. the way to Cruz de Ferro. So at Cruz de Ferro, of course, we leave stones. And stones are just a great metaphor, you know, for the... <laughs> for the stuff of life, you know, I mean, it just doesn't work any better. Of course, the Camino is one big metaphor, but, you know, I had the thought the night before I went up there, I was staying in Rabinal. I had the thought that I know it's a symbolic idea, but what if it really works? What if I cast these stones on the pile tomorrow morning and it really works? And then that got into this whole rabbit hole of identity. <laughs> Do I identify with the things that I've been through? And who is the me who walks away from Cruz de Ferro? So I woke up the following morning and, and made the climb the rest of the way up to, to the cross. And when it came time to let go of those stones... I found it almost impossible. In the book, I ask rhetorically, 
when does a handful become a fistful? And I literally could not let them go. Mm. I had to take a moment and say, okay, well, the most powerful prayer I've ever said is a prayer to be willing. And I didn't come this far to not leave these stones. They all represented aspects of my life, relationships in my life. I had literally harvested three of the stones from the graves of my mother and father and son. And they carried a lot of meaning. And I finally did drop them. And then the Camino had its way. Hmm. This whole new, completely out of left field, this whole new dynamic from early, 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 early childhood came up. And it had to do with the loss of my siblings. I'm an only child. And that was due to blood incompatibility issues between my parents. This was before they had medication for such things. And I lost a brother and two sisters at birth. The first one passed, I was two. The second one passed, I was six. And when the last one passed, I was eight years old. And interestingly, the way it was explained to me, an only child, so explaining something to a child who was having a very self-centered experience of life, being an only child. The only place I could go was blaming myself for their deaths because there were some biological realities here. It was an antibody-antigen reaction. It started with my mother's pregnancy with me. And so there was a direct correlation between the fact that I was walking around on the earth and the death of my siblings. And that's where I went with it. I don't know how old I was when they explained that, but it was old enough to be able to assign that guilt. So this came up right out of left field. I had no idea it was coming, and it just smacked me. And so walking away from Cruz de Ferro that day, I had a sense of release from burden, but there was this whole, whole new animal to be processed, if you will, and that followed me through the rest of the walk. You talk in the book about how when you released the stones, you were casting away pain and guilt and shame that had accrued Mm -hmm. over the years. And you've just touched on some elements of that in your discussion. So it seems like your experience there was an opportunity to learn about forgiveness and an opportunity to forgive those who had harmed you and and more consequentially, I think, to forgive yourself. What did you learn in that moment about forgiveness? What would you share with others about how they can face down the guilt and the shame that they are carrying? Well, I would suggest that the rounding out, if you will, of the idea of forgiveness did not occur until late in the experience of pilgrimage. Mm. And this was something that followed me literally through the rest of the walk, all through Galicia, certainly, was a prominent part of climbing up to Osobrero and beyond. And it really didn't come into its more full understanding until I was in Finisterre and I had spent some time there. I spent nine days there just sort of down processing what had just happened over the course of the Camino. And 
ultimately, I had reflected on how I had processed these things over the years. Now, I live a recovering life. I I live a recovering 12-step life. And part of that process is to self-examine on a regular basis and, and certainly on a daily basis. And I had addressed a lot of these issues in that inventory process where I came to understand that it certainly as it applies to my siblings that I carried a measure of survivor's guilt and that intellectually I could look at that and say, well, it wasn't my fault. And maybe that's all I could handle at the time. Mm. And I thought it was good enough. I truly, in my heart of hearts, put me on a lie detector, ask me, and it says true. I had really thought in my heart of hearts that that was the finality of it and that I I could move on. Hence my shock and dismay when this thing comes back up at Christophera. Through a series of meditations and long walks at Finisterre, and I I covered this in, in detail, of course, in the book, I came to the conclusion that there was one remaining piece of forgiveness And that had to do with forgiving myself that I had ever believed it to be true. And when I was able to do that, let go of the guilt feelings about having believed it to be true, that's when I experienced, I think, the final lifting of that. At least that was the sensation that I had at the time. And again, it was very phenomenological in terms of how it happened. I had been meditating and I literally sprang up like as if I had been spring loaded. (laughs) And uh, it was a remarkable experience. The forgiveness piece is such a strong component to pilgrimage, at least it, it was for me. And I had this recurring thought and it began when I was on the Meseta. And it was almost like a mantra that I didn't fully understand at the time. And I would be walking along in the rhythm of the walk, step, step, step. And I would say, I am walking toward love. And again, I didn't get the full implication, but that sure sounded good at the time. And, <laughs> and, and I, I wasn't walking toward Santiago. I, knew I was walking toward this finer thing, but I couldn't quite understand what that was all about. And it was at that turnaround point, as our friend Alexander refers to, in in Finisterre, where I came into a more complete understanding of what that is. And if just for the moment we can define love as recognizing oneness, that I can look at you or anyone else and see myself in you. You and I are separated right now by about 3,000 miles. (laughs) I feel very close to you because of what we're talking about. But just I have a sense of oneness with you. And this is what I think I was walking to, that sense of oneness with the world, with all of its being. And so when one can adopt that attitude, forgiveness becomes almost a non-issue. And it becomes something that, well, maybe it's more like Nothing really happened here. Just a very light, lovely, delightful feeling. And that's one of the things I think uh, it is probably the big thing that I carried forward, that struggle and resistance and pain is largely an imagined thing. And that, that love is the answer. It truly is. 
It's interesting hearing you talk through this because I came into this having read your book, thinking about the three stages of your pilgrimage and then, of course, the processing after. But it now seems like in terms of your time in country, in Spain, there are clearly four distinct stages to it. And after the Maseda gave you the opportunity to process and just be open to the emotional burdens that you were carrying, it felt to me to some degree like the stage from the Maseta to Santiago, it didn't have the same precise focus and intent to it that some of the others did. But hearing you talk now, I can see how you were still sifting and sorting through what had been opened up in the Meseta. And it's really, how many days were you in in Finisterre at the end? I spent nine days there and needed every last one of them. That's as many days as you had in any of those preceding three sections. And it's that fourth stage. It's that time where you're there and you're wandering and you are again processing what happened. I mean, that's a a perfect argument for Alexander's framework, right? For having those days at the turnaround point for the meaning making. Mm -hmm. Most definitely. And I think that if I was to try to define the centering experience of the Galician section of the walk, that last phase of the walk, I would have to center it there was a tremendous amount of mystical experience. There was transcendence. You know, certainly the climb to Osobrero was, was a very transcendent experience. But I would have to say that there was a gathering. There was some kind of a gathering that was going on. Take that information or those impressions from the Meseta. Gather them up. Scoop them into that pile. Let's go to Finisterre. So your observation is well taken. I really appreciate that. It was a little more homogenous for me when I was writing the book, but your point is is very well taken. And I will tell you this, when I was doing those walks out in Finisterre, it's an interesting place. There's a section in that area that I was actually directed to by one of the people at the accommodation. she was kind enough to open a map, and she pointed to a place. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's on the map is Castro Mignon, and there's cliffs, sheer cliffs. It's a sort of an oceanside moor, just breathtaking cliffs. It's just up the coast. You know, you can almost see Muchia from the distance on a clear day. And I walked out there, and it was as if there were these impressions coming to me, memories of the Camino of different parts of the Camino, but they weren't coming in any kind of logical, and I'm using air quotes here, logical sequence. It was almost as if it was coded information. And that's when I think things began to to reveal more and more, and, and that forgiveness piece came together. And, and so there was a lot going on out there, for sure. That's why I, I said before, I needed every every moment of those, <laughs> those nine days out there. It, it really was quite the experience. The title of your book is Into the Thin, Mm -hmm. and you discuss thin places at different moments in the book. For those unfamiliar with the concept, what are thin places? What makes them thin? It's actually kind of of nice segue there. What makes them thin, I believe, is us. But there are in the traditional, I believe it was, uh, and you probably know more about this than I do, but I believe it's originally was a Celtic term the idea of thin places. Uh, mm-hmm. At least that's where I had come up with it. And classically, places on earth 
where the veil between matter and spirit is thin. Revelatory places, you could say, places of unity of world and and mind and and spirit and body, where we can see across from an illusory world into something more real. As to what makes that happen, you know, in the case of the Camino, I think one would have to acknowledge that ground that has been walked on for centuries, literally a millennia, with that kind of intention is bound to be anointed holy ground. And so there is that element to it. But I would submit that the thinness is an inside job. (laughs) There are places that I walk here in Connecticut where I know I'm experiencing just wisps of the divine. I just know this in, in my soul. They abound. They're all over the place. I think there's some that are louder than others. And certainly, I think the Camino de Santiago and all roads that lead to it, and I mean that in the largest possible sense, not just the spider web of, of roads that, that lead through Europe to Santiago and beyond, but, but that bring us there, that all of that was very thin territory indeed. I'll tell you a quick anecdote about when I, when I began writing, I didn't have a title. <laughs> Although I had the idea of this thin places thing, and I, I did the poor man's title search. I, I went on Amazon and I found out there was all kinds of books about there was a yoga book there was a diet book there was all kinds of books with thin places right that was an immediate rule out and then i started playing around with some pronouns and and like ridiculously writerly sometimes and playing with words and different forms of the word and then i thought geez you know movement it's about movement right so moving into something and then into the thin started swimming around in, in my mind at least as a title it needed help the help of a subtitle certainly but as a primary title, that worked. So I was driving, this was during warm weather, and I was, I was driving along in, in the car and I had the sunroof open and I had the Jimmy Buffett satellite radio station on, you know, the perfect summer soundtrack, right? And the song comes on, and not a Jimmy Buffett song, just as I'm playing around with this thing into the thin, my very favorite Van Morrison song comes on, Into the Mystic. I said, ah, it's a title, so, and it's, it's been with me ever since. Oh, man. I'd like to end with this question. I don't think I've ever talked to someone before their book actually came out into the world. I'm generally talking with people, you know, well down the road of publication. I've bought the book. Yeah. I've read the book. I've thought about it for a while. I reach out and initiate the conversation. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to you before this book comes out, and I think more than most pilgrimage books— you bear your soul in this book and you discuss a lot of intense personal pain and familial stories. Mm-hmm. Are you nervous as you sit here waiting for this to go out into the world and be read by so many people you don't know? How are you anticipating what that is going to be like? You know, I mentioned before that I, I live a recovering life and when one lives that type of life, it's almost as if our life is an open book. And there's not a whole lot about my experience that I really feel terribly guarded about anymore. We have a saying in my crowd, you know, if it's got a name, it's been done, you know. (laughs) So I, I tend to avoid those ideas like guilt, shame, and remorse as a matter of course. 
And, you know, it kind of goes back to your first question about why did the book need to be written? And I think that that goes to that, that it's something that if it manages to stimulate some thought about things, if it certainly if it inspires somebody to go to pilgrimage anywhere, that would be a wonderful thing. But if it brings them a little bit closer to their own truth and maybe provides a little entertainment and adventure along the way, then so be it. And I'm totally okay with that. You know, I, I really have very little reservations about that aspect of it. Well, I hope it finds its way into many hands and before many eyes, and it's a powerful story. And just congratulations. I know how much work it takes to get to this point. And in some ways, this is the hardest part. You know it's done, it's out there, and you're, you're just waiting for it to actually appear in the world. So uh, I'm excited for you to see it out there. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate it. I'm very grateful. I'm grateful for the words that I received and that which has put it in front of the world. That's, that's a beautiful thing. Long before I was familiar with the concept of thin places, the primary place that I intellectually wrestled with thinness was in Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities a literary masterpiece in which Kublai Khan and Marco Polo have a meandering metaphysical meditation on a series of cities that do and do not exist. The cities are organized into categories. Some are straightforward, like cities and desire. But then there's a different category. Thin cities. High school Dave spent hours speculating over what Calvino had in mind by thinness. Ultimately, it sounds like it was just a catch-all for him. Nonetheless, to this day, I can't think about thin places without thinking of Calvino. If for no other reason than to spread this particular gospel, here's the description from Calvino of one of those thin cities. If you choose to believe me, good. Now I will tell you how Octavia, the spiderweb city, is made. There is a precipice between two steep mountains. The city is over the void, bound to the two crests with ropes and chains and catwalks. You walk on the little wooden ties, careful not to set your foot in the open spaces, or you cling to the hempen strands. Below there is nothing for hundreds and hundreds of feet. A few clouds glide past. Farther down you can glimpse the chasm's bed. This is the foundation of the city, a net which serves as passage and as support. All the rest, instead of rising up, is hung below. Rope ladders, hammocks, houses made like sacks, clothes hangers, terraces like gondolas, skins of water, gas jets, spits, baskets on strings, dumb waiters, showers, trapezes and rings for children's games, cable cars, chandeliers, Pots with trailing plants. Suspended over the abyss, the life of Octavia's inhabitants is less uncertain than in other cities. They know the net will only last so long. While Calvino's thin city isn't necessarily a thin place, I'm struck by the sheer acceptance expressed in those closing lines. This is not a long-term arrangement. The end could come at any time. And yet, that undeniable and imminent expiration date 
feels like it is met with peace and majesty. Risk and glory sit side by side. And to me, that's a hallmark of thin places as I see them. They are temporary, short-lived, liminal, to hearken back to Victor Turner again. It's that known brevity that elevates the intensity. When we are confronted with finality, we bring more intention and urgency to the situation. And thin places are sublime spaces, not merely aesthetically beautiful, but a beauty accompanied by risk. They lay bare something profound, but that can be both blessing and curse. To me, that's one of the potent reflections from Stephen's account. The thin places he encounters on pilgrimage are not self-contained miracles. They open the door to possibility. But the transformative work that follows is just that, work, requiring disciplined and sustained reflection. To that end, his journey offers insight into how one can well and bravely face tragedy and pain. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Stephen Drew. You can find him at author Stephen Drew, and it's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-D-R-E-W, authorstephendrew.com, and his book, Into the Thin, is available directly through homebound publications and online bookstores, once it's released on September 15, 2020, of course. The Camino Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com or through the Camino Podcast's Facebook page. And you can find episode production notes at DaveWoodson.com. Thanks as always for listening.